0: Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Gentle Vibes, a vintage shop for the psychedelic mind, formerly inside jeans in Hamtramck with a new Detroit location coming soon. Picnic a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and deadstock textiles. Picnic strives for minimal waste but maximum authenticity. Future Vintage over Future Garbage. Find Picnic Wear on Instagram at picnicware, and that's wear, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No Flight Back Vintage, bringing fun new life to old things. Always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at vintage. Vino Vintage, based just outside of L.A. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between. Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Old flame mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Wide-Eyed Vintage, a curator of truly covetable vintage from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Wide-Eyed Vintage encourages the experimental spirit of dressing up and will provide you with all the special pieces that will make your wardrobe truly unique. Dedicated to preserving the craftsmanship of clothes, Wide-Eyed Vintage only selects pieces that are well-made, pieces that have been proven to last beyond their lifetimes, so you too can enjoy them for more lifetimes to come. Find us on Instagram at wide underscore eyed underscore vintage. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that feels just a little bit woozy from one Bud Light Seltzer. Hey, it's still trash month here at Clothes Horse, where we're talking about all kinds of waste and you know how it's connected to so many larger things. Like, wow, (laughs) let me tell you, ruthless capitalism and waste are like the kind of best friends that wear matching outfits and you know they engage in like all kinds of nefarious schemes, like trying to get people to admit embarrassing things over the phone so that they can later blackmail them with that information. Or maybe they're doing that shady thing where you have someone on a group call, but the one person doesn't know it, and then they get them to say something bad that the other person can hear. That is what waste and ruthless capitalism would do. (laughs) It's like their signature move, right? And speaking of capitalism and waste, today's guest is Anna Sachs, aka The Trash Walker, This episode features part two of our conversation. So if you didn't listen to episode 45, which was the previous episode, go back and do that now because I think it's really important to understanding everything we're talking about. Plus, it's a really good episode. (laughs) Today, we'll be continuing to talk about something we touched on in the first half of this conversation, which is how retailers use legal agreements like NDAs and severance agreements to prevent workers from speaking out about their experiences, including all of the egregious amounts of waste they encounter as they are often forced to destroy perfectly good products. That's one of the reasons most people outside the industry don't know that this is happening every day in stores all over the world. It's It's like top secret, so it sounds shocking and like you think, oh, it couldn't be that common. But the reality is that most retailers, the big guys, not like your local boutique, are doing this on a regular basis. Once again, if you haven't listened to the first half of our convo, just go do it right now because it all ties together and it just, it paints the full picture. In fact... (laughs) It also turns out, this is something we discussed in the previous episode, that completely distrusting your employees is also like matching outfits-level best friends with appalling waste. So you won't know that if you don't listen to the first half. Before we get into some more trash talk, it's time to thank our newest Patreon supporters. First is Jody Feldman, and Jody lives in Baltimore, Maryland, one of my favorite cities. I've talked about it here before. She has super cute bangs and, most importantly, two cats. As you know, loving animals is a big part of the Clothes Horse DNA, so I get really excited when I see all of your pets, which, by the way, reminds me that this week in the Clothes Horsing Around Facebook group, the only good thing happening on Facebook right now, we are all shared photos of our pets, and it was a really good time. So Jody, you better go on over to Facebook and tell us your cat's names. We all need to know. <laughs> Thank you for your support, Jody. Next is Caitlin Burgo of Washington D.C., and she's—I'm pretty sure our first patron from D.C. I feel like I need to get one of those maps where you like scratch off each state that you've traveled to. But this would be for patrons and listeners. Caitlin and everyone else who lives in and around DC, I hope you're all hanging in there. Um, you're in my thoughts during this super scary time, and if any of you need to come and crash here in Amish country, you know you know how to find me. Thank you so much for your support, Caitlin. Next is Erica Martelli of Pittsburgh, PA. Pittsburgh has been coming in strong for Close Horse and will definitely be the first stop on the post-pandemic close horse world tour thank you so much for your support erica up next is my friend emily chen of brooklyn new york she shares my love of kawaii and she is this is not hyperbole she is one of the kindest people i have ever met we worked together like a million years ago and we've remained friends since thank you so much emily Last but not least is Karen Elgai. I hope I'm not mispronouncing your name. I totally should have messaged you first. Um, Karen, she is a mom, a dog owner, a fashion stylist, a bar owner, and a self-proclaimed imperfect activist. Like, how do you do it all, Karen? I'm just tired thinking about how busy your days must be. Thank you so much for finding the time to support Close Horse. If you, I'm talking to you, would like to support Close Horse via Patreon, you can find out more at patreon.com slash closehorsepodcast. Of course, that link will be in the show notes. If Patreon's not your thing, you can also Venmo me at crystal underscore visions. Once again, if you have any questions with that, just hit me up. And of course, it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, you don't need to spend a dime to support Close Close Horse. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts, you can tell your friends, and most importantly, you can just keep listening. I'm so glad to have you here. Our Canadian friend, Amy, of the Velvet Underground Shop, reached out to me about something that, you know, after I thought about it, I realized is very important in any conversation about trash, and that's plastic shopping bags versus reusable bags. I mean, you know all about plastic shopping bags if you've ever, you know, left your home or apartment because chances are that you see them all over every gutter, side of the road, beach, you name it. There's a plastic shopping bag. It looks like it's been there for a while, but I'm pretty sure it's from Walmart and it's stuck in the highest branches of a tree in our yard. Like I think it was there when we moved in. It's easily 20 feet in the air and it drives me crazy like it's actually super loud in the wind and I don't know it's probably like 30 feet from the kitchen sink and yet I can hear it when I'm washing dishes sometimes and it makes me so crazy (laughs) but we don't have a lot a ladder high enough to get it out and both of us have very high deductible ACA insurance so We'll be waiting until someone shows up with a mega ladder, I'm not sure who that is, maybe it's you, to get that down. <laughs> but that's uh, that's just how plastic grocery bags are. They are just lightweight enough to get stuck anywhere, but somehow so strong that they can withstand months of rain, snow, and high wind. You know, according to the Earth Policy Institute, nearly 1 trillion, that's trillion with a T. Plastic bags are used worldwide every year. You know, since the early aughts, activists across the United States have been working to ban these plastic grocery bags. I mean, if you've listened to this podcast long enough, then you know that plastic is a problem. And these bags are particularly insidious because they're just like everywhere. You know, the average plastic grocery bag is used for 12 minutes. Yet it takes 500 years or more for a plastic bag to degrade in a landfill. Animals like birds, marine life, cattle, all the animals basically, they often mistake plastic bags for food or nest building materials, which leads to poisoning, choking, entanglement, blocked intestines. All of this is very bad. And as I've mentioned, plastic bags are like just the right weight and size to travel so easily and so far via the wind. Plastic bags can easily blow out of trash receptacles, aka trash cans, or even landfills and just make their way all over the place. They can clog up waterways, damage agricultural land, and this is so gross, provide ideal breeding grounds for mosquitoes with just a tiny bit of rain on top of them. They Also, of course, end up in the ocean. And scientists estimate that around 8 million metric tons of plastic trash enters the ocean every year. We've talked about that a lot here. As you know, that plastic doesn't degrade, it just breaks down into smaller and smaller pieces. It poses a threat to all aquatic life, including coral. And of course, most of this aquatic life ends up ingesting the plastic, which is bad for them and ultimately bad for humans. And everyone agrees, everyone, that plastic bags are sort of like an integral ingredient of litter. They're just everywhere. And of course, last but not least, lest you forgot, plastic bags are made of petroleum products, aka fossil fuels, in a highly toxic process. Now, despite more than a decade of pretty aggressive campaigning, I would say, Only eight U.S. states have fully banned plastic bags, as well as some countries around the world, but not like a critical mass of countries. Also, a handful of cities have just gone their own way and banned plastic bags. You know, not surprisingly, environmentalists have faced a lot of pushback, a little bit from the public, but mostly from the plastics industry. The plastics industry also has basically the most amazing lobbying and advertising budget, right? You also know they have all that money to lobby and advertise because they are one of the very powerful arms of the oil and gas industry. I was thinking the other day as I was researching this topic and just sort of thinking about like, you know, because I've lived in multiple cities where plastic bags were banned. I was thinking about what that transition looked like. And I remembered when I was living in Oregon and the fight was really going on, it was very, it was like at least a year of just back and forth over plastic bags, not plastic bags. I would literally see billboards all over the city and I would receive postcards regularly in the mail that simply wanted to tell me and everyone else who lived in the city that paper bags were not an acceptable alternative to plastic bags. And you know why? because they would break down in the rain basically if the ban passed none of us would ever be able to shop in peace again all of our groceries would just be trailing across the sidewalk in the rain now paper bags are not a good alternative for plastic bags which surprised me too we're going to get to that but it's funny they could have just told me that but instead they were like no your groceries are going to get wet how will you go grocery shopping ever again this was like it was like this very bizarre fear-mongering but I know it was effective because there were so many times like on the bus or just other places in public I would overhear conversations that included people parroting this fear of a wet paper bag (laughs) Now, that said, if you're remotely environmentally minded, whether you live in a city that banned plastic bags or not, you've switched to reusable totes by now. Of course, this is unfortunate to me. During the pandemic, many stores have actually forbidden reusable bags. It kind of depends where you live. Here, where I live, it's pretty dicey that you're going to get to use them. So a lot of us are back to using plastic bags again especially if you get your groceries delivered, which probably a lot of you who never got your groceries delivered before are getting them delivered now, right? Like regularly. In the early part of the pandemic, this was a really – I mean, this was a really upsetting thing for me. It was definitely like a source of despair. In the midst of like 900 other things that were causing despair, it just really weighed on me and it was just one more thing that I was like, this is going to push me over the edge, all these plastic bags – It's gonna be okay. (laughs) If you live in a state or a city where plastic bags are banned, chances are that you have two options. If you get to the checkout and you realize you've forgotten your bag, which, if you live in one of these cities or states, has happened to you a lot. I know it's happened to me a ton. I'm always mad at myself. You can either buy paper bags for a few cents, usually, I would say about five cents, but it could vary depending on where you live, or you can buy some reusable bags that are basically thicker plastic from the store. And those are usually about $2 a piece. Once again, depends where you're shopping, you know, where you live, etc. You're probably not going to be surprised to hear that grocery chains in areas with bag bans are enjoying a little extra revenue because not only do they no longer have to spend money to give you bags for free, they also make five cents or a couple bucks every time you have to buy a bag. So it's a little added bonus for them. Now, what if I told you this? And it may surprise you a lot. I know it surprised me. If you take the plastic litter aspect of plastic bags out of the equation, and instead you only consider all of the other environmental impacts associated with manufacturing bags, a cotton tote or a paper bag is actually worse for the environment than one of those horrible, annoying little plastic bags. Like a lot of things we talk about here, it's complicated. We're going to go through it. In 2018, Denmark's Ministry of Environment and Food did a life cycle assessment of these bags, and their findings actually agreed with previous similar studies that, I don't know, I guess I would say were not very well received by a lot of environmentalists because The findings were pretty upsetting. Basically, they found that classic plastic shopping bags, those ones that you get at the grocery store, have the least environmental impact of all the bags we use for shopping. Once again, this assessment ignored the old plastic in the ocean and the waterways issue, which I would say is probably the biggest issue here it depends what your priorities are. But from a purely resources, energy, carbon footprint perspective, reusable totes are far more problematic. So those plastic bags from the grocery store, I mean, they're kind of, when you think about them, they are different than the other plastic bags we encounter in our lives, whether it's trash bags, Ziploc bags, poly bags that are closed shipping. in. They have a really specific texture and weight, and if you close your eyes, you can almost feel it, right? They're called low-density polyethylene bags, otherwise known as LDPE. This study from Denmark found that these bags only needed to be reused one time specifically, and this is what they recommended, as a trash can liner or maybe for cat litter or pet waste, and then thrown out slash incinerated to sort of pay their environmental debt. And once again, it's really important in this equation and all the things we're about to talk about that these bags are not thrown out into the street and become litter, but they're actually reused and thrown out properly, right, and then incinerated with the rest of the trash. Otherwise, it gets even murkier, right? So we just have to make that assumption that everybody who gets a plastic bag reuses it that one time and disposes of it properly. I know. You have to suspend a lot of disbelief here. Let's roll with that, okay? Also, relating to the reuse of these bags specifically for trash, this is really interesting. In American cities where plastic bags were banned, sales of thicker, much more environmentally impactful garbage bags increased exponentially because so many people use plastic shopping bags for trash. When you think about it, these bags are so lightweight, kind of like the cheapest, flimsiest of all plastic items. They are always a better option from a waste perspective than an actual trash bag. Once again, think about having one of each of those in your hands. You can feel that difference, right? So banning plastic bags and then people not having access to them for trash and buying even more wasteful trash bags, well, it's kind of like a double whammy, for the fight against plastic, right? Okay, so what about paper bags? Because this is often the low-cost alternative that grocery stores can offer you in cities where plastic bags have been banned. Or like, as far as I know, Trader Joe's only gives out paper bags, right? Well, remember how many plastic bags I said we were using worldwide each year? Let's just say that number again. One trillion. One trillion. Scientists believe that if we shifted to using one trillion paper bags each year, we would see massive deforestation because paper comes from trees and one trillion bags requires a lot of trees. And keep in mind, many grocery stores double bag paper because it's harder for heavier refrigerated items or cans, bottles, that kind of thing. So we're almost looking at like double the amount of paper bags being used if we had to replace all of the plastic bags. Making a paper bag also requires more energy and water than making one of these cheapy plastic bags, the LDPE kind. So for all other environmental considerations besides litter – Paper products may be worse than plastic ones. And that says a lot because, remember, they're biodegradable by nature. Furthermore, a paper bag would have to be reused about 43 times in order to reduce its environmental impact to that of those plastic bags. And let's all be real here. There's no way any of us are reusing a paper bag 43 times And yes, paper can be recycled, but that also consumes a ton of energy and water. And remember, this study was taking all of that into account. What about those reusable bags at the grocery store that are pretty much just thicker plastic? Well, they would have to be reused 45 to 85 times in order to minimize their impact to that of that single-use plastic bag. And to me, this is where we start to see the numbers become more achievable. Like let's say you go to the store once a week for a year and you use that bag every time. Well, that's 52 uses. So you're starting to hit that sweet spot. And those polyester bags, like those made by Bagu, they only have to be used 35 times, but you're totally going to use it way longer than that. So that's achievable. And this makes sense to me. This is when I'm like, okay, the reusable bags are starting to look more promising, unless you're also buying a shit ton of garbage bags too, because we know those are even more wasteful, right? So let's get to the cotton bags, because those are the ones that most of us own the most of. How many cotton tote bags do you have? I mean, I've received them at every trade show, event, I've gotten them from vendors, They're free at street fairs. I have a few ones with special art from artists and brands that I love. I'm staring right now at a Hello Kitty one that I bought in Japan on the Hello Kitty Shinkansen. I have a lot of tote bags. Raise your hand if you literally have a bag full of tote bags in the back of your car. Oh, you have two bags of tote bags in your car? Three bags of them? I know some of you do because I've been in your cars We've managed to pare down our collection of tote bags to about 20, which is still more than I think we need in this house, although I will say they are very helpful when we're trying to move or organize things. And I do use those 20 bags over and over again. I've had some of them as long as I've been with Dustin, maybe even longer. But guess what? I'm nowhere close to using them enough to minimize their impact to that of those terrible plastic bags. In fact, that Danish study said that a conventional cotton tote bag would have to be used, are you ready for this? 7,100 times to minimize its impact. And if it has a leather strap, any kind of pockets or details, well that number increases. The more tricked out your tote bag is, the more you have to use it. I'm sure you're asking, what about an organic cotton tote? Well, you ready for this number? You need to use it 20,000 times, 20,000 times to minimize its impact to be in line with that single-use plastic bag. Why so much? Well, according to the report, and this is something we've talked about a lot here, these organic cotton bags have to be reused so many more times because... There's the assumption that organic cotton has a 30 to 50% lower yield rate on average than conventional cotton, meaning if you had one acre of conventional cotton and one acre of organic cotton, you would have a much bigger harvest on the conventional cotton side. Therefore, scientists tend to assume that organic cotton requires more water to grow the same amount. That's the catch with organic cotton, right? That's why we're always like, well, organic cotton uses twice as much water because to get the same amount of organic cotton, you're going to have to use a lot more water and a lot more acreage, right? Like a lot of things we talk about here, it's not so black and white, right? Because from a water standpoint, yeah, organic cotton is a nightmare. But from a lack of pesticides perspective, which is also really important, It's awesome. It's amazing. Like all things related to environmental responsibility, it's not an easy right-wrong, yes-no answer. And I would say to a certain extent, neither is the reusable bag issue. Now, I think we can use our bags thousands of times, but that requires a few things from us. One, we need to stop acquiring new toe bags like right now. And I know it's hard. Unfortunately, like all of the things that we've talked about here, at some point, making these bags turned into a hugely profitable business, so they are being sewn and printed for sale, for giveaways, for employers to give out for team building, for stores who want to feel more premium, and on and on and on. They're the perfect souvenir even, right? Millions upon millions upon millions of these bags are being made and sold or given away or going home with people every year and some of those just get thrown away which is mega super wasteful right we just don't need any more of these bags (laughs) so just say no use the ones you already have because it turns out you're gonna have to use them for years upon years upon years to get your full use of them and I mean you have to like really use them carry one with you every time you think you might go shopping I actually always carry a pretty thin tote bag in the bottom of my purse that I roll up and tie with a ribbon so it's just there. After I use it, I roll it up, tie it, and throw it back in there again. You know what else? If you have a car, keep your bags there. Keep one in your desk at work when you someday work in an office again. Really set yourself up for successfully reusing these bags because what I found was the problem for me is that I would want to go run errands directly from work I don't have a car. So, you know, I'm taking public transportation, walking, riding my bike, whatever. I get to the store. I don't have any bags because I didn't carry one with me. And then I'm buying some more bags, right? That's how I kind of got into the habit of carrying some rolled up in the bottom of my bag. I I suggest that. It made me feel a lot better because I wasn't dealing with the crippling guilt of buying more bags. I guess what I'm saying is overall – plastic bags still suck. Plastic is bad and we should minimize our use of it. We know that. But that only works if we actually use our reusable bags a lot, regularly, and we don't overconsume reusable bags just because they're cute. I mean, there are fast tote bags out there. Fast tote bags is a massive industry. Most tote bags are fast tote bags. I don't even want to get into the supply chain and the conditions under which the people who sew these tote bags work. I can assure you they're not good because most companies are buying these tote bags for pennies. So there's one more reason to not buy more tote bags. Okay, now let's shift into the second half of my conversation with Anna. As I mentioned, we're going to be talking a lot about the retail industry and its workers today. In the U.S. alone, pre-pandemic, because who knows now in 2021 what the number is, but pre-pandemic, there were 9.8 million retail workers. And 57% of them were women. So when we talk about the treatment of retail workers, we're talking about something that both workers' rights advocates and feminists should be talking about too. In fact, when you really think about it, Feminists should also be workers' rights advocates and vice versa, right? It's intersectional or nothing. With that, let's get into the conversation. One thing we talked about was how, you know, employees are afraid to speak up about this. And, I mean, the employer employee relationship, especially in retail, could not be more unbalanced because employees are fearful and they need that job. People, Most people are not working retail just for fun. I think that's important to call out. And it's not just teenagers working their year, plenty, mostly adults who are trying to support themselves and possibly even their families.
1: Mostly women also. It's a mostly yeah. a f- women in the U.S. who are working retail. Right, right. Um, so,
0: you know, we touched on NDAs, which are non-disclosure agreements. It's also known as a confidentiality agreement, a confidential disclosure agreement. There's a bunch of other names for this. And it's a legal contract that, between two parties, ostensibly the employer and the employee, that basically says, it kind of outlines confidential material, knowledge, or information that they want to share with one another. Like the employer might show you their buying strategy or how they run their business, but you are not supposed to tell anybody about it essentially. And these NDAs began a long time ago in an era where there was a lot of research and development going on. And this would be primarily an agreement between someone who was maybe being brought to work on a new project by some sort of company that was developing a new product or brand or something like that. And it kind of bloomed into being like oh you work in our store part time we're going to need you to sign this NDA agreement it just kind of grew into this like blanket thing it's a really fearful place to be after you've signed one of these cuz you think that you can never talk about anything ever and it it's 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 a, it's a very trapping feeling i'll say that yeah. um, theoretically and this is what it makes people fearful is that Theoretically, the company could sue you for damages if you speak about the things covered by the NDA, but what I found, and this doesn't surprise me at all because we talked about this before we started recording, but I feel like so many of these companies sort of exploit their employees' like lack of experience or knowledge in this area to sort of get what they want from them. And in this situation, these are not fully enforceable because they're too broad I mean, mm. they kind of don't talk about anything in specific. Apparently, for a truly successful NDA that will stand up in court, you have to be very specific. Like, here at CVS, if you want to – you are signing this agreement that you will not tell anyone how the cash register works or something like that. Like, it needs to be very, very specific instead of, like, don't talk about anything that you've ever seen here. Uh, so – yeah. In that way, it can be hard, not that I think anybody should be risking this without talking to a lawyer, but it can be very hard for them to pursue you for damages also, these agreements tend to have language in them that is not even legal and uh in in no way enforceable basically <laughs> like it's just throwing stuff in
1: i I mentioned that to my dad, who's a lawyer about nDAs and it, how common they are in retail in the retail world and even when I think you had mentioned that applying for jobs, sometimes you have Mm -hmm. to sign Mm -hmm. an NDA. And he's like, that's, that does not sound legal to me. (laughs) That doesn't sound like you were saying enforceable, like to to sign an NDA before you even apply for a job. That's, that's very unusual. And also to have such a broad, usually for an NDA, there's like a, a time frame, usually exactly. It's about pertinent information, company secrets. You know, like that's what NDAs are usually used for um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to protect trade secrets. They're not usually used for anything you do you can't talk about ever. But I think. If you're an average retail worker, you're not going to have a lawyer examine it and no. modify it, or <laughs> it be like, actually, you don't need to f- sign this, or actually, it's not legally enforceable. Like, I have no clue exactly what the the NDAs that they're making people sign are, but. I think lawyers do need to get involved in this whole situation at some point, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I think that they should take on this case. Um, maybe that's American Bar Association saying like what you've been abusing this, the legal system because this is not what the legal system in the U.S. was set out to do. It's very predatory.
0: Oh my gosh, it totally is. And you use the exact term there, which is trade secrets. That was the original intent of the NDA yeah. to- to basically protect intellectual property. And that makes sense. Like if you work for a company that developed a specific algorithm that runs some sort of software, you should not be out there broadcasting that algorithm to everyone. But what really happens in most of these situations is that – The intellectual property trade secrets, they may not even be a part of this agreement at all in terms of, like, what the the employee is exposed to in their day-to-day life at the the office or in the store. And instead what happens is it sort of – it silences employees in every way. And so Mm -hmm. it – It sort of allows toxic cultures to sort of thrive. Um, One of the most nefarious and relevant aspects of the NDA, uh, especially these newer ones, is the non-disparagement provision, which is essentially like you can't say anything bad about the company ever, you know? It's ridiculous. And this is often a part of severance agreements too, which we'll get to. This... Yeah. clause, this provision, prevents current and former employees from speaking negatively about the company and disclosing their experience on any level. Yeah. Those who do violate them risk facing hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines or retaliation if, of course, that NDA holds up in court, which it may not. So what happens is toxic work environments can flourish because people leave and they're too afraid to say something mm-hmm. while they're there and after they leave. It has been especially sort of like a buzzy topic over the past few years when we talk about sexual harassment yeah. especially in high-profile places like NBC, Fox News, where no one can speak about this abusive culture that they're working in. About 94% of workers that are sexually harassed on the job never come forward, and the NDAs are a big part of that because they there's not a lot of education around what those NDAs even really mean. So there's a fearfulness that if you try to go speak out to anyone or seek legal help for the harassment you faced on the job, that you might find yourself in the middle of a lawsuit. It's it's just, it's like a culture of fear. You're afraid to go to work and deal with what you're dealing with there. You're afraid to speak out about it. And so,
1: yeah.
0: you know, it can be something as horrible as sexual harassment. It can be something that's a little bit more innocent, like all of this destruction of perfectly good product. People are afraid to talk yeah. about it. Um, I thought this this quote that I found is so in line with what you've been, you and I have been talking about. Uh, it's from a guy named Kenny Trin. And he said, NDAs can actually give you a hint on how the company views its employees, meaning hmm. they don't trust you, <laughs> you know?
1: Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, and I think that, you know, it's not – NDAs have a role. They have a place, like we've been saying. But the average retail worker probably doesn't need to sign an NDA. No! there's really not you know, I, I don't know, I think the main thing that the NDAs are protecting against are um, the waste, in my opinion. You know, uh-huh. it's, what else is there that they can't, that's so terrible that they you can't disparage and they're afraid that you're going to talk about it. I think it's the waste that's going on. Maybe there's other things, but yeah. I think I would say if I had to pick, it would
0: be the waste, it would be like, the way the workers are treated because I've seen Mm. some weird stuff, especially when we talk about, like, loss prevention. Like, that stuff can Mm. get dicey. I remember a situation years ago in retail where, like, the district loss prevention manager swooped in and he was a terrifying guy. He was a former Chicago cop, which he would remind us all the time. He took a manager into the manager's office. We could hear him screaming at her and accusing her of being on drugs, being a bad person, and he was going to call the police and they were going to come to her house and arrest her and she'd be in prison for the rest of her life. Wow. And what had she done wrong? She had given a coworker to ibuprofen. Like, oh my gosh, that's the kind of stuff that happens too. Wow. They know, they know they're doing things wrong, so they just are like, it's better rather than us like fix that. Let's just take away the rights of our employees. Um, which brings me to another yeah. common agreement, and especially in 2020, more relevant than ever, the severance agreement. Um, most NDAs, in fact, most NDA, NDAs that people have signed this year, for example, are connected with a severance package or final paycheck. It's a very—I mean, I've had to let people go in my career. I have been let go in my career. It's a very common practice to be like, "Hey, I've got your paycheck in this envelope. First, I need you to sign this paper and that paper." Is the severance agreement. Mm-hmm. So they, if the employee doesn't sign it, they don't get that check. They don't get that money. Uh, when you lose a job, you're kind of like, oh shit, I need all the money because I don't know what's going to happen. So yeah. it, it puts you in this incredibly vulnerable position. The imbalance of power is so out of control.
1: How is that even legal? Th- that's just like, how is that legal?
0: I know. I mean, it, it should be illegal and this is like one of those things where I'm like more people need to be talking about this yeah. because it's so unethical. And what I did read, one lawyer was saying – and if anyone who's a lawyer is listening to this, I would love to hear your take on this. One lawyer was saying that they felt that probably that severance agreement would be thrown out of court because it was so unreasonable. The, there was no balance of power there in terms of like we are two equal parties coming to the table to sign this agreement. It was – basically under duress. Mm. Um, And so these employees are scared into silence. I will tell you, uh, you know, I got let go during the pandemic. I had to sign a severance agreement that said I would never speak negatively about the company that had employed me, neither publicly nor privately. Oh my God. Please come and enforce that. Oh my God. (laughs) I know. I know. Um, I also came across an article because you have to read both sides of this that suggested that companies who were thinking about not giving severance to employees they were laying off, they should consider it because then they could get the employees to sign a severance agreement. So it would be a win for them that would just cost them a little bit of money.
1: It's to me, if you're being let go, maybe, maybe this is total naivete, but if you're being let go in the middle of a pandemic, um, you shouldn't, to receive severance money, which is basically being Mm -hmm. like, we are sorry for letting you go. Here's like one month of pay so that it could tie you over for like until you find another job, which is like most places when you let someone go, you give them some sort of severance. That's very common. Right. It needs to be separate from any of those agreements. It's not right. It's not right to say, it's, it's Otherwise, it's like hush money. Otherwise, it's like you can never say anything publicly or privately that uh, mean about us or that's critical of us. And in exchange, we'll give you a month's worth of pay. Like that's not that's not really? what the equation is or should be or I think is even legal because under those circumstances, like you mentioned duress, but also it really seems like uh, hush money.
0: Yeah. No, I think hush money nails it. That's exactly what it is. Because the language in my severance agreement was like, not only could I never speak publicly or privately any, saying anything bad about them, I also couldn't tell anyone how much severance they had paid me. And that was because it was a very small amount and that they had cut off my health insurance wow. immediately. And that was not something that they would want to get out there, right? Yeah. And I feel like that's hush money. You like, you know that you did bad things, yeah. or you did unethical or irresponsible things, you want to make sure no one can say anything about it. Yeah. And I feel like what happens is then these companies are never held accountable ever. Yeah. for unethical behavior. Yeah. Um I also this year especially has put workers in the most precarious position they could be in. It, like there was never a great balance of power, now it's even worse. Mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of other ways that companies are now getting employees to sign agreements when they're, I mean, for the most part, kind of unaware what they're signing because there was no lawyer there sitting there giving them legal advice about this. So, a lot of people reach out to me, you know, via Instagram or email to tell me their stories about their experiences. Uh, one thing that has been coming up a lot with several different companies is that a lot of these big retailers have been updating their employee handbooks during 2020 with a lot of different information. But one of them is like where ostensibly the headline that they're serving to these, serving these uh, agreements with to their employees is like, hey, we added anti-racism and discrimination language because, you know, we're woke now. So you have to re-sign this agreement in order to get your next paycheck or continue working here or whatever. But they found that other agreements have been shoved in there kind of under the radar, including non-compete agreements and other like NDA-type language. Also, arbitration agreements, which basically rob you as an employee of your ability to sue your employer for harassment, discrimination, wage theft, being injured on the job. And instead, you have to go through an arbitration process with an arbitrator chosen by the company. And this is like a process that is legendarily biased towards the company because they're paying the arbitrator. I know. It's so unethical. And- also, workers who were furloughed, and this is specifically, I'm thinking of retail workers here, but I'm sure there are other examples, have been forced to sign these kinds of agreements to come back to work after being furloughed during the pandemic. So the story is, sign these agreements to come back to work, or don't sign and lose your job, but we'll see that as a resignation, which means you won't even get unemployment. So what are you going to do?
1: Oh, my God.
0: You're going to sign the agreement. Uh This was a huge thing in uh, May or June with the container store. And I'm kind of disappointed that this didn't pick up more momentum or change anything. It's like no one cared that like 60-year-old women were being forced to sign these agreements saying that if they got sick and or died of COVID while working at the container store during a pandemic, that they would be unable to sue the company for damages. I mean, just it's
1: horrible to me. I think that is a little bit of a tough point, not to be callous, but if the container store didn't provide PPE, enforcement of social distancing, masks, like enforcement of cl- crowd policy, then I think that there is like a legal case, but if they were doing all of that and someone died of COVID, I just think with COVID, you don't necessarily know how you got it or like, or if it was working at, you know, the store or if it was another means. So I understand that aspect actually of like wanting, as long as like they were doing everything right of wanting to protect themselves from people saying that they got COVID from working at the container store. Um, but the the issue I have, I think that the what you were speaking about with the updating the employee handbook with the anti racism language, which is important, but then also slipping in under the rug all of these non competes, all like don't just talk about any of this non disclosure, the arbitration that's not okay. And that needs to be blown up. That needs to be a New York Times story that journalists need to investigate. Retail as a sector, in terms of how stores are performing and like the retail economy and how much people are shopping, is really reported on probably too much. But the underlying issues Mm -hmm. of like how are the people being treated? What are the agreements that they're being forced to sign about the waste? Like, all of that is very underreported. Um, there hasn't been a reckoning yet, I think, in the U.S. with the retail sector. There has been, the been a reckoning in the entertainment industry. There has been a reckoning in the news and journalism industry over the summer, I felt like there was, with Black Lives Matter and representation and voices. But I don't think that... I think the retail sector has basically been left like intact and not examined for the ways in which it needs to improve. Um, so I think, like, if any journalists are listening, this is a this is a really important piece of information. To me, it seems like they opportunistically took Black Lives Matter, added it to their employee handbook, the language of anti racism, and then snuck these things in the arbitration, non compete, non disclosure. And that is a story that needs to be told.
0: Totally, totally. I think I just uh, like the the media the government you know trade groups they all overlook retail all the time and even though it is a huge employer in the united states and mm-hmm. across the world yes. and i tend to think that it's because retail work has traditionally been seen as women's work most of its employees are women and so when we hear politicians talk about you know bringing the jobs back and you know, caring for our workers and whatnot, they're looking at more like manufacturing, the traditional like male job. But the reality is we don't live in that world anymore. Like retail is a major employer here in the United States. And these people, they deal with it. I mean, for one, in most states, retail workers are what are called at will, which means that their employer can terminate their job at any moment. They don't need to like go through a series of write-ups or even to have a compelling reason, they can just say you don't work here anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, they deal with inconsistent scheduling, bizarre on-call shifts where you're not technically working today, but you have to be ready to come work into work at any moment if we need you. Or oh my God. <laughs> coming into work for an eight-hour shift, getting sent home two hours in because business is slow. How can you make a living like that?
1: That's
0: it's awful. Sh- it's so awful.
1: This is a case in which unions matter. Like this is the case in which having a collective body where all the employees can be like, actually, you can't have us on call. That's not fair. Actually, you can't have us come in for an eight hour shift and we plan our entire day around it and then send us home after two hours and not pay us. Like that's not okay. That's the case in which that collective action makes sense. And I think because retail is very siloed you're working as an individual you're not a full-time employee necessarily um you don't have this collective bargaining history then you don't have you don't have power so I I think that there should be actually I don't know if there is a retail union but there should be a retail union that all the People who work at Old Navy, Victoria's Secret, Gap, you know, Anthropology, Marshalls, TJ Maxx, whatever, all those places, Bath and Body Works, like they're forced to destroy usable items. That could be one of the the things that they then contend with and say, unless you do this, we're going to strike. We're going to do something for attention to change these things, you know. Um, So, yeah, I, I think... I don't know if that's possible, but I think that would be effective.
0: I mean, I think that's the future. I think yeah. that, unfortunately, most retail workers are too fearful to even pursue unionizing. And mm-hmm. so I have this fantasy where when you think about the millions of people in the United States who are working retail, imagine them all being able to band together and yes. have that sense of strength
1: yeah. and
0: protection. I mean, that's when the balance of power changes
1: Yeah, when
0: that can happen because it's just – even if you're a salaried worker in retail, it's also super exploitive. Generally, Mm -hmm. employers will pay you the lowest salary they can to no longer have to pay you overtime and then you end up making minimum wage because you're working like 50, 60, 70 hours. I had a job where the expectation is that you would work 60 hours a week no matter what, possibly longer, overnights. Whatever was needed, also you could, you know, get a check for like seven dollars an hour at the end of the day. I know that that continues. I talk to people all the time, and I think it's time to change that. Yeah, I don't yeah. know when we all decided that retail workers were the bottom of the barrel and we didn't care about them anymore. Mm. I hear so many people talking about restaurant and bar workers this year. I hear no one talking about retail workers.
1: That's very true. That's very true. And I, I think it's one of those things that we mentioned of it's predominantly women in the retail world working there and Mm -hmm. I think it's devaluing sectors that are traditionally like female jobs or female dominated so nursing teaching retail all those sectors are underpaid Mm -hmm. and um I think underappreciated um
0: absolutely yeah
1: there was actually I remember I took a college course um in uh, in sociology and one of the things there was a study during world war ii how men were away fighting women went to factory jobs and um recategorizing the factory jobs so before they were considered men's jobs because of, i guess of the stamina and the strength or something and then afterwards this exact same job they they decided like oh no they're female jobs because of women's like nimble skinny hands or whatever um and then <laughs> and then they also changed the wages so this exact same job the exact same work once females enter that space instead of men they lowered the wages because they devalued the work and i think that consistently i mean that still happens of women's work not being valued i i 100 agree
0: what is like your long-term vision like what would be your you would be like well we did it i accomplished what i wanted to do with trash walker
1: Oh, um, I, uh, <laughs> well, it's, it's evolving. Um, I think there's so many things I'm really focused right now on. I want to push for some more systemic change because that's where I think it needs to happen. It, I've just seen the piecemeal stuff, and it's not enough. Mm -hmm. It's not enough for the scale of the problem. So I I think a sweeping donate-don't-dump legislation should be passed. There's one called um, this new year. I'm going to be working on it, hopefully, um, the Preserving Charitable Initiatives Act, which is a bipartisan legislation that was introduced last year is going to be reintroduced this year so basically one of the and one of the interesting things is that the retailer manufacturing association is behind it so it's like i'm i i want to work with them um and it's changing the tax code for donations so i Mm. i don't want to i don't want to say that this is why corporations don't donate because it's it is not true, but there is a 25% limit, like a 25% limit for um, receiving a tax deduction for donations, just like there's a limit for individuals donating um, for their tax deductions. There's a limit set on corporations. And what happened with COVID is that they had, you know, think about all the Easter objects that they had produced and they were in stores. And then basically there oh. wasn't Easter. Think about all the spring objects and like even summer objects. And so retailers all of a sudden being like, well, we actually have more stuff to donate. But, um, you know, it, for tax purposes, it's going to we're going to hit that 25 percent limit and then it's no longer financially beneficial for us. So I think we need to remove that cap. I think we need to and we need to treat losses differently. I think that's been a huge legal leaphole that retailers actually have been exploiting, where um they count anything that they can't sell as defective merchandise and losses, and then they get a full tax deduction for it. So if mm-hmm. if you're saying that, you know, like you you can end up paying a lot less taxes by destroying this merchandise and saying, well, there was a problem with shipping, or it was it was damaged. And so you can no longer use it, even though you had an employee damage it. Um, So it's like a a huge tax loophole that corporations, I think, exploit. Um, So I think that needs to change. I think, you can do a combination of punishments and rewards. but it, So the Preserving Charitable, Charitable Initiatives Act, I want to get involved with it and I want to try to broaden it and make it so it's not just that lifting that cap limit, but doing more things. And the fact that it's already bipartisan and led by the retailer industry, um, I think is really hopeful. I want to like really push for that. And now with the new administration... I'm hopeful that things can change and I'm optimistic that we can have more changes now um, and that actually donate, don't dump those type of legislations that both help the environment, that help people in need, that make employees feel good about the work that they're doing and giving back, like, and the culture of giving back at work. I think that that can be bipartisan and bring people together post pandemic and post Trump presidency in a in like a really meaningful way and so that's my current goal but there's so many things there's so much legislation like we were talking we mentioned expired food or about to expire like we need to standardize those dates that's a very low-hanging fruit fruit um because right now the dating are all over the place they're not federally regulated except for baby formula there's some different state regulations um But they should be standardized. They should be used by and best if used by. It shouldn't be like expires. It shouldn't just like randomly have a date and no context. It shouldn't have the sell by date publicly facing so that it confuses people. Um, So like that's really low hanging fruit that should be common sense and bipartisan. I think like extended producer responsibility is another thing. Ending subsidies for the fossil fuel and, and lumber industry in the U.S., There's so many there's so many things that I think are actually they should be um, bipartisan, requiring a certain amount of recycled content and new products to support the recycling markets, Um, standardizing recycling across the U.S. Like I think the cans metal should be recyclable anywhere in the U.S. because they're such a valuable material and because we want to avoid the need to extract new material, which is very environmentally damaging and damaging also for the communities that live around the mining um, sites. So I I think that there's a lot of easy, I mean, it's easy in the sense that it's common sense and should be easy. That's the stuff that I think that I I would like to see happen and try to be involved in. But one thing thing at a time.
0: (laughs) One thing at a time, I know. I do think it's like, it's a mixture of definitely the government stepping in and passing regulations around all of this stuff, uh, you know, because so many have been ripped away over the past few years, especially. Um, But also I think us putting pressure on retailers, like, hey, we know what's going on. We know that you are throwing out all this perfectly good stuff that could be donated. And also part of that is sort of changing the way we look at business and a successful business.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Like, for example, you know, most companies are kind of they march to their stock price, you know, whether it's CVS or it's Anthropology or anyone like that. It's all about the stock price, which in 2020 has been especially interesting because they're making a lot less sales yet they're still expected to maintain the profit levels that they would have made on higher sales. So that's why they're furloughing people, laying them off, uh, you know, making even cheaper stuff and raising the price a little bit. I mean, all kinds of stuff like that. You know, a lot of companies have actually been able to maintain profit levels and even increase them between 2019 and 2020, which Mm -hmm. is wild to me. Uh, But also a big part of that, like marching towards a stock price comes from these inflated sales plans that start Mm -hmm. at the top and ultimately turn into a bag of wrapping paper on the sidewalk. Mm. You know, these inflated sales plans help keep the stock price high. They lead to executive bonuses. Like these are the metrics that the executives in any corporation are really marching towards. So by the time these like inflated sales plans get to the buyer, they've been sliced up and it's so it's such a micro view of the whole machine that you don't even know that you're placing orders against some crazy, definitely mm. unachievable sales plan. You know, this is how H&M ends up burning billions of dollars worth of clothes every year because- no one except for who's at the top really knows that these numbers are a fail. You're just like, I got to hit these numbers. I got to write this many orders. I got to hit these sales. So the sales plans are always unachievable, which means there's all this stuff left over. Um, Also we live in an era now where as a buyer, you're encouraged to make the biggest buy you can so you can bring down costing. So you buy way more than you can actually sell. You're Mm. always hedging your bets. Mm. Um, Also, faster turnarounds you know we've sped up fashion and just about every other industry significantly over the last 10 years uh one of the things that happens is that you as a buyer or a designer are not as involved you not, there's not as many checks along the way to make sure that this product is, is exactly what you were envisioning so a lot more just sort of subpar on interesting stuff hits the stores um and what's left is like so much of this product is so inexpensive at this point that mm-hmm. in a ledger you're like we'll just throw it out. Like why would we spend money to ship it back to the warehouse or spend money to donate it? It feels or store it. yeah or yeah. store it yeah. And especially the tax, the uh, tax write off is really interesting to me because that like further devalues this stuff. Where if you're just a person sitting in an office looking at spreadsheets, you're going to say yeah, throw it out. You know, like that's that's where we are, um, and I think that we need to, as consumers, also be pushing companies to stop being so wasteful and just ridiculous. Yeah. Like maybe maybe the the number one measure of how well your brand is doing isn't the stock price or the dividends you're paying to your stockholders. Maybe it, we're thinking more about like social responsibility, environmental responsibility, social justice being a part of that like report card. Like, sure, you hit the sales, but, like, how much stuff did you throw on the side of the street?
1: Yeah, I think it needs to be disclosed, actually. Like, so Michael Kors and Coach are both publicly listed. Coach is part of the tapestry brand. Um, and they both – Michael Kors incinerates huge amounts of clothing and shreds them first. I've heard that consistently oh, with yes, people. That's like, yeah, yeah, and – Coach also, it slashes like it's leather bags and shoes and whatever. Um, that's not public. And if you're a publicly traded company, I think that's relevant information to include somewhere. So, you know, Coach also, Tapestry, the, the parent company puts out a corporate sh- social responsibility report and nowhere in that report, which talks about waste and water and what it's doing for the environment and community, doesn't mention these practices. How is that possible? How, why, why is it that your corporate social responsibility only highlights uh, the very few things that you want people to highlight, like how your Hudson Yards offices have LED light bulbs or whatever? Yeah, right. um, I'm so tired like, reading about
0: LED light bulbs as, like, yeah. oh, well, we have
1: LED light bulbs, so everything is good over here, just look away, yeah. I feel like that's a common one. One thing with the corporate social responsibility report is that they become these PR mechanisms for like the good mm-hmm. things and not demonstrating the bad things. And I think there needs to be some, especially for publicly traded companies where you're supposed to be disclosing all this information to investors, um, that that should be included. It shouldn't just be the things that you want people to know about you, but I think it's legitimate material piece of information, how do you dispose or what do you do with excess but unwanted merchandise? And then coach would need to disclose. We order employees to slash it so no one can use it and resell it. Then we throw it in the dumpster. Um, And then it goes to landfill or incinerator. And I mean, imagine reading that. imagine I reading that. <laughs> yeah, because right now, I feel like the whole sustainability stuff is a joke because they also have climate change related disclosures on their um, their SEC filings for the um, like the commission. That they need to disclose and it's it's like a cut and paste thing of climate change is real it could have negative adverse effects on our businesses um it could lead to reduced sales whatever but it never like so they talk about this but then they never talk about how they're contributing to it um and ways in which they could not contribute to it so I think that like it, in the whole <laughs> sustainability like corporate reporting section I think needs to change so that it's actually like real information and not this kind of like honestly it's BS it's it's, it's not BS oh. it's, it's like it's 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 truthful but it's very selective truth <laughs>
0: Yes, so it, yes, it, I think yeah.
1: that's a good thing
0: to put it. It's always like a lot of statements that, yes, I totally agree with, but there's never like, and now here's what we're doing. That part yeah. is never a part of it. So let's talk a little bit more here about what we can do as, you know, individuals to help stop all of this waste, to advocate for retail workers and everything else we talked about. You know, you've mentioned this. One of those things is reaching out to your elected officials, especially you know, your local and state governments. I have found it's pretty cool. You can actually call or email your representatives and they will get back to you.
1: Yeah, I, re- I recommend calling above emailing. Um mm-hmm. It's personally, that's what I've heard that it's just like more effective. If one office receives a 100 calls in one day, that's more effective Mm -hmm. than if they receive a 100 emails, because that's one person that's time like on the phone, they're going to spend the whole day like taking down names, your like your zip code, your message. And then at the end of the day, they're going to be like, Oh, my God, you need to do something about this. I'm getting a million calls. (laughs) So I think that I think that um, it could be a really effective strategy for, for getting and working in coalitions. That's what I've, we haven't talked about save our compost and composting in New York city, but like working in coalition has been amazing. And I've been doing that work as part of my job at Think Zero, but it's a coalition with all these different composting nonprofits and environmental groups and legal groups and like that's and, and locally re- elected officials and, that's Mm -hmm. it, it just makes the work so much easier when you do it in a group setting rather than doing it alone um and i think that's how you get things that's how you actually get things done uh working in groups so um so yeah i recommend trying to if you have an issue that you care about well then think about like all the relevant coalitions like for the preserving charitable initiatives act they haven't from my understanding, they haven't spoken to the food donation nonprofits. And so like, I want to bring in the food donation nonprofits for them to be part of like this discussion. Like there's so many places that like they need to also be part of these conversations because it will result in stronger legislation. So um, building building coalitions, I think it's, um, it's a great way to, to get things done. Absolutely. I mean, that goes back to the
0: idea of retail workers Mm-hmm. imagine a coalition of retail workers and unions and organizations that were all working together to fight for their rights and better work conditions yeah there is so much yeah. power in numbers
1: yeah if there was like a national retail strike day where everyone said we're all going to strike and unless we have our corporations which are different but we're all united in our same concerns um so let's all strike like It seems like a radical thing, but it's also not when what you're asking for is to like not destroy usable items and instead donate them or or not to like, like you mentioned all those problems with the NDAs and with scheduling for shifts that get canceled and being on call and all these different working conditions where it's like, we need to have better quality of lives because right now we're like, our, our lives are filled with material goods, but I think it's also important for people to feel like their quality of life is improving. And from, I took this like Coursera. I half took it. I didn't finish the Coursera happiness course, um, the science of like happiness, which I recommend. I do recommend, but I just never finished it. But anyways, um, so they were talking about how the actually like. It, they've measured it. They've done studies, and happiness in the U.S. has um, declined in decades. So, I, I think actually all of these things are ways of making our lives better, making the world better, increasing the sense of meeting and community and fulfillment and happiness. Um, and that's not a radical. It, 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 it's, I think it's like a very. I, I don't know, it just to me it doesn't seem radical. Like it's not to me, it seems like obviously wouldn't you want that? When, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean
0: everything that we're talking about is is not a radical thing to change. It's all so common sense. When you actually say yes. it out loud, you're like, yeah, why wait, why don't we do that right now? So yeah, like let's
1: get together and make it happen, you know? Yeah. More bathroom breaks. There's so many issues like that I've heard about where like, yeah, yeah. Increase the lunchtime, increase the bathroom break time. Like that's let people live their lives, you know, and have a little bit more joy in it. Yes. Yes. I
0: agree. (laughs) It goes back to this idea of like creating the success of a company, not just on like the bottom line, but like so many other things like environmental responsibility social responsibility the happiness of their employees whoa that would Mm -hmm. that would change
1: yeah for
0: a lot of companies i like love this idea so much once again very brand damaging if some of these stories get out you know yeah well thank you so much this was so fun anna
1: Thank I- you. This was this was really a joy. It's um, like um, given me also so many ideas of, like I said, TikToks or like I want to research now and maybe if if people listening know, like, are there certain retail retail workers' rights organizations that should be leading this? Um, you know, because I think that all of this should happen and there's no reason why it shouldn't happen right now. I think now is a good time. I agree. I feel like now more than ever, this is the
0: year where it needs to happen. And I was thinking about like kind of what my priorities were for this year. And that's one of them is like figuring Mm. it out. So yes, I need to find out who, if anyone is working on this and start talking to them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I think if any listeners, right, you leave comments on um... – You can email me or message me on
0: Instagram or you can call the Close Horse hotline. Amazing. We have a phone number too. That's so good. <laughs> nice job. It's nice. I love when people call and leave messages. It's always really cool and interesting. I'd love that. Thank you so much, Anna, for taking the time to talk to me, for giving all the listeners an opportunity to meet you. And I know that you've inspired all of them so much. Hopefully we can have her back again to update us about what she's doing because she is doing so much and I want to hear about more of it. I know I said this in the last episode, but Anna is so inspiring to me as an activist, as a person who just wants to change all of these things. She's she's doing it. Like she's doing it right now. And she has so much good advice about how to make that change happen. I hope that you will all reflect on the things she shared with us. If you're not following her yet on Instagram and TikTok, do it now. She is at the Trash Walker, and I'll share those links in the show notes. Also, if you haven't signed her petition urging Petco and PetSmart to change their policies and procedures regarding live animals, Do it now. After all, like I said at the beginning of the episode, loving animals is a key component of both Clothes Horse and, you know, the anti-brunch lifestyle. So I'll share the link in the show notes. Go sign that petition. And also, you can find a lot of information about what's happening at these chain pet stores along with other updates by following Anna on Instagram. So just go do it. Pause right now and go do it. I'm so glad that I got to talk to Anna because it's inspired so many other ideas that I have now, and it's really helped me see the connection between all these terrible things like distrust of employees, exploitation of those very same employees, uh, poverty wages, and of course, egregious and disgusting waste. It's all connected. I love Anna's call for a reckoning of the retail industry, and I'm here for it, and I want to be a part of making that happen. So I have a few follow-up requests for all of you. First off, I want more info about retail workers unions and so does Anna. I also would love to hear about people's experiences trying to unionize their own retail workplace. I found two unions that work with retail workers online. One specifically has retail workers in the name, and the other is a union I know only because they are the union used by Powell's bookstore employees in Portland. It seems as if very few retail workers actually belong to unions, and I want to know why. So if you know something there, please reach out. I know that major retailers like Walmart and Target actively surveil workers to ensure that they're not thinking or talking about unionizing but I feel like there's even more at play here like the unions aren't even trying to recruit retail workers and there's so many of them if you have some info here please reach out I would also love to talk to all of you about your experiences with NDAs severance agreements and other ways that you have felt silenced by your employer's about things like those that we talked about here on the show. So please reach out via email, DM, or call the hotline. It can be anonymous, we can bleep out the company names, whatever feels comfortable for you. I have the technology. And if you are a lawyer who knows a lot about this area, please reach out to me. I have so many questions. I mentioned this on Instagram last week. While I know a lot of you really enjoy when I dig into specific brands and retailers and calling out their greenwashing and bad practices, I do have to tread lightly there because it puts me in a vulnerable position legally, as you can imagine, right? So there are some brands that I just cannot talk about right now for that reason. Because you know what? Some companies are just incredibly litigious. You know, someone like, say, Diet Prada can do that, can call these people out because they have millions of followers to sort of insulate them and they have a massive Patreon income to pay for lawyers' fees. Someday, maybe Horse will get there, but this is not the time. So I have to be really careful. I do dream of the day where I'm able to be very open and very loud about all of these brands. I think it's really important that everybody knows What's going on out there, right? Also, as I mentioned in my conversation with Anna, I specifically have two former employers that I cannot mention by name due to these kinds of agreements. One of them is small, but incredibly vindictive and litigious. The other is so huge that I'm pretty sure they could destroy me in like 30 seconds. So while I talk about things from time to time that I have observed and experienced at these companies, I never share details or names. And yes, there are many bad things that I saw at both of these jobs that I can never share publicly unless I find my way out of these agreements, which is, you know, I'm going to be honest, it's kind of a long-term goal for me. Once again, it would be great to talk to someone who is an expert in this area, I'm going to tell you this, I think it is incredibly unethical that employees are pushed into signing away their freedom to speak out about unethical, unjust, and wasteful practices that they observe on the job. It's just, you know, we've talked about this here before, how we can't let what's legal versus illegal inform us about what's right and wrong from a moral ethical perspective because often those two things have very little in common, right? So yes, I suppose there are ways in which the law is like, hey, it's illegal to murder someone. And we would also agree that it is unethical to murder someone. But the law will say it's, it's kind of okay that you're silencing people about bad things that are happening in your workplace. But you and I know that that is unethical. It is wrong, right? So it's a complicated issue. If I could have one wish this year, it would be that we could totally suspend any severance agreement that was signed during the pandemic because I just feel like in particular, when the balance of power between employer and employee no longer exists, which is what's happening right now, the newly laid off employee has only a void of like joblessness and fear lying ahead of them. So they're going to sign that agreement no matter what that severance package is and no matter what bad things they cannot speak about. One last thing, and this is by request of Ms. Gabriela Antonis. You know her. You love her. I know that we all have a ton of anxiety about this week, about what will happen in the days surrounding the inauguration of Joe and Kamala. I'm afraid of violence. I'm afraid of people being hurt or killed. I'm afraid of just terrifying repercussions – I think none of us are strangers to fear after the last few years and right now more than ever. So please, please take care of yourself. It's okay to feel afraid or anxious. It's okay to tell others that you feel that way. There's no shame in it. And ask yourself, like, what will make you feel a little bit better? Like, what is that? I suggest that Gabriella stack up on anything that she would need to stay happy, fed, and cared for this week just in case she needs to stay indoors for a few days. You know, and I would say, what makes you feel a little happier? Do a face mask, watch a movie, read a fun book, zoom with your friends, drink a Bud Light seltzer, paint your nails, work on a craft project, tackle your mending pile, whatever makes you feel good. Sometimes for me, and this is so nerdy, just cleaning the house makes me feel like, okay, I control my destiny, I control my world, (laughs) maybe try that or not because that's like a really unfun way to cope with stress but I will say this it's okay especially after everything we've experienced in, in last year in 2020 to focus on just feeling good and safe this week I've said it before and I'll say it again this community the close horse community is here to support and strengthen one another we're all here for one another we will get through this We have to. We have so much to do this year and next year and the year after that and so on. So let's take care of one another so we can all work together to do all these amazing things in the future. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your mom. Tell the people in your Facebook group. Tell them all. Thank you to everyone who has shared our content or recommended us on Instagram. As always, I love seeing your, your shares, your reposts. I love when you tag us and things. If you aren't already, you can join in on all of our Clothes Horse Adventures on Instagram at Clothes Horse Podcast. And as a reminder, you can reach out anytime for the sources I use for information both here on the show, and on Instagram, I have it all. I can help you. Sometimes it's nice to like read the articles yourself just so you can like talk to someone and maybe change their mind, right? Knowledge is so powerful and I wanna share it. I also just wanna ask all of you again, if you have a story about Etsy or something really important about your experiences selling on Etsy to share, please reach out to me. I'm hoping to write and research the script for the Etsy-sode in the coming weeks. And don't forget, if you have a question, an episode idea, a story to share, please always reach out to me. You can call the hotline at 717-925-7417. Uh, spoiler alert, I think that Wednesday's episode is going to be sort of another hotline episode with some calls, conversations and some research I've done into the origin of the anti-littering movement. I mean it is trash month, right? So if you've been wanting to call, this is a good time. If you don't like to call, you're a lot more old-fashioned, you like the written word, you can email me at Amanda at closehorse or DM me on Instagram, of course. For those of you who are interested in contributing to the upcoming Closehorse blog, Or at least maybe learning more about how the process works we are having our contributor info session zoom meeting this saturday january 23rd so if you want to attend you need to message me asap to get the info for the meeting if you can't attend but you still want to contribute also reach out to me so i can send you the recording of the meeting and all the other information you can do all of this reaching out to me either via email or DM, although I'm going to be honest with you. If you DM me on Instagram, I'm just going to ask you for your email address, so it's probably way more efficient to drop me an email. That email address, again, is amanda at clotheshorse.world. Also, if you want to meet other clotheshorse listeners, might I suggest joining the Clothes Around Facebook group? I know Facebook is for boomers and people who like conspiracy theories, but we're taking it back. We're reclaiming Facebook. You know, that reminds me (laughs) – there's this bar in Portland called The Tube, which in the early aughts was, like, the coolest bar in town. Like, everybody there was always really cute and really stylish, and they had the best drinks, and it was, like, this futuristic decor, and it was a place I would go all the time with my friends. They always had, like, the best DJs. It was amazing. But something weird happened where it just suddenly turned into like a really lame place to go and like, you know, they suddenly had like a bouncer and a cover fee and, you know, that kind of thing. And I remember one night my friends were like, we're going to reclaim the tube. So we go to the door. We get carded. We pay – we literally pay money to go in here. We walk in. We walk all the way to the back. We turned around and walked back out. And we were like, yeah, we're not reclaiming the tube. But maybe we can reclaim Facebook. So let's just keep trying with the Close Horsing Around Facebook group. And that link will be in the show notes. All right. One last thing. If you love listening to me talk, you love fashion trends, social trends, 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 check out my other podcast, The Department, which I co-host with my friend Kim. This week, on Tuesday, to be precise, we'll be beginning our series on the early aughts. And well, I can't wait. There's gonna be lots of Barbie pink, lots of reality TV, living room stripper poles, weird bad shoes, and of course, Von Dutch hats. So please check it out. Thanks, as always, to Justin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye!